We are pleased to have Brand Gardner. Brand Gardner has been a uh, frequent speaker at Fair Mormon conferences and a friend of Fair Mormon for a long, long time. Brant Gardner holds a master's in anthropology from the State University of New York, Albany, specializing in Mesoamerican ethnohistory. He's the author of some excellent books, and I'm not going to read any more because I can never pronounce what the things are that he writes about. But with that, I'll turn the time over to Brant Gardner. I want you to all notice the uh, photograph that we have here of Joseph right after he received the plates. I want you to think about what's happening. Joseph after about, oh that's right, I gotta click on both of them, there we go. See, I, it worked up here, but I've got them in two different places. It was, it was on first. He doesn't have, we've changed computers and so it all right, so we are having technical issues. There we go. Now, now you get to see the photograph. Because there's a lot of photographs that were taken of Joseph and the plates. This guy had spent four years waiting to do this, right? He had all kinds of people who were trying to get the plates away from him. So imagine what happens when he finally gets to the point where he's got the plates and he gets to a table someplace and he puts them on the table. Maybe it's alone. Maybe it's later at night. Everybody else has gone to bed. And he sits down and he probably does exactly what you're seeing here. He probably moves one of the plates over. He probably runs his fingers across the engravings and feels what it's like. And he looks at it and says, I got no clue. <laughs> what now? So now he's got these plates. Now what? Get my two things working here. The real problem that we have with what happens in Joseph is that the solution to this problem really isn't obvious. He's got a problem, but he doesn't quite know what to do with it. So here is the information you need to know. And this was from an excellent book put out a year ago, a little bit longer than that, maybe. Joseph only had a rudimentary knowledge of written English, never studied even Greek and Latin like university graduates would have done, let alone the lesser known ancient languages. Joseph had absolutely no ability to decipher any language other than English. Let that one sink in there for a second because it remained true. Joseph couldn't translate. That is not going to change. Okay. He had told Joseph Knight Sr. soon after that he had retrieved the plates from the hill, that he wanted to get them translated. And uh, once in harmony, as Knight wrote, Joseph began to be anxious to get them translated. And with his wife, he drew off the characters exactly like the ancient and later sent Martin Harris to see if he could get them translated. Think about that for a second. Joseph now has these plates. He's pulled them in. He's been told that... that, that Rather than the gold in the plates, the value was what was written on the plates, and they were to be translated, and he was to get them translated, and he sits down, and he looks at it, and he said, well, ain't going to be me. He said, I wonder if somebody else can do it, and he sends Martin off, and he says, maybe some scholar somewhere can figure this out. How well did that work out? 
So now we've got a problem. Joseph is supposed to get the plates translated. Joseph cannot translate the plates. Now what? Here is the next big question that we have, which is in this problem that Joseph has of looking at the plates and saying, I got to get them translated. Nobody knows how to translate them. I still got to get them translated. Something has to happen. He's going through and racking his mind. The question then becomes, why in the world would he have ever thought of sticking a rock in a hat as a good idea of how to do it? Okay, all of you out there who have wondered, you know, where you put your keys the last time, how many of you have said, I got a great idea on how to find them. I think I'll take a rock and stick it in the hat. And I'll look at the rock and it'll tell me where my keys are. Anybody done that? Okay. You know, if somebody asked me, what is the very last thing you would think of as a way to translate the Book of Mormon? Do you know what I would come up with? As the very last thing I would think of? I have no idea, but it wouldn't be putting a rock in a hat. That wouldn't even occur to me. There is no way in the world that I would think that I could do anything with a rock, let alone a rock in a hat. So now we got a problem. We've got to translate the Book of Mormon. We've got to find a way to do it. Joseph had to find a way to do it. Why does it occur to Joseph that he might use that method. I will submit to you that the reason that it occurs to him is the same reason that lots of things occur to us. We think on the world in which we live and the things that we're familiar with, and based on the things that we're familiar with, we try to figure out how to get the job done. So, what kinds of things are available in the world that Joseph lived in. And this is one of the times when we have to remember that Joseph didn't live just a little while ago. We can count the years, and 200, for those of us who deal with any kind of history, 200 just doesn't sound like a lot. With the kind of history I get interested in, you know, by the time you have newspapers, I figure that's modern. Uh, you know, 200 is nothing. If you go to somebody, and, and I'll tell you this story very quickly. I worked with somebody once who came over from England, and we were talking about problems of housing and getting insurance. And they said, in insurance in England, um, they, they have a couple of categories, and they have old houses and new houses. And they said the insurance rate you pay on an old house is, is different than what you pay on a new house. And I said, yeah, yeah, kind of, kind of makes sense. And she says, and the definition of a new house is anything that's been built after 300 AD. <laughs> that's the new house. So, you know, this concept of, you know, how long ago did Joseph live? Think about what happened in the last 100 years and how rapidly the world has changed. Joseph did not live just a little while ago. He lived in a completely different world. What makes his world even more different for us is that his world was living at the tail end of yet another world that was rapidly changing and shifting. And a lot of things that had been current prior to that time 
were starting to fade, and he was in a place and at a time period that were in the tail end of a lot of different kinds of things that were on the verge of dying out. Now, one of the things that was very current at the time that his father was involved in and that Joseph as a youth would have been involved in was water dividing. And that's something that's carried on. How many people have, you at least heard of water witches, people using a divine stick, anybody who knows someone who has? Yeah, a few more, okay. There you go. We live in a modern world, and if you ask any scientist, is there any scientific reason from behind this? They'll go, no, not that I'm aware of. And even though we live in a scientific world, we've still got people here who know someone who has done something and maybe it worked and maybe it didn't. That isn't even the reason you know, why I bring the thing up. The reason for talking about it is this is something that people believed in. So much so that by the 1940s, almost every well in the Ozarks that had been found had been found through a water witch. That's up through the 1940s. Okay? We still have people with this idea that persist. And so if you were to talk to a neighbor and the neighbor said, we've been having problems, we've had a couple of scientists out here and they can't figure out where to get the well water for my land, and so I had this guy with a, a you know, witch and stick come by. And uh, I, I thought I'd try that. If they said that to you, you'd go, weird, but okay, right? Because we've heard of it. It hasn't totally gone away. There are things from that same time period that participated in the same world that generated this idea that have persisted, you know, that persisted up to that time, but have since died out. There we go. And that's the whole idea of a seer stone. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about seer stones and what you do with them in a few minutes, but the very first thing that I want to do is make sure that you understand that they had a function. There was a place in the world for them. This place in the world had begun at least as far back as England. Uh, if you have ever read the story of someone talking about the, the Scottish second site, uh, that was something that described people who were using stones as ways to see things that could not normally be seen. And one of the things that happened in this world of tapping what they would have thought was, and we call it the supernatural, it's a mistake to call it the occult, because that kind of sounds like it's awful and weird and maybe dangerous and not religious. These were extremely religious people, and they thought they were tapping into some part of divine power to do this. These were just special powers that were given to different people. So they would say, yeah, let's... let's look at rocks and, and, you know, what would they do? Well, this heritage that came over from England said that what you do with a rock is different than what you do with a stick. With a stick, you're going to find things that are underground, but you tend to find principally water, but you might find something else. Perhaps you'd find a mineral or something else that's hidden. Uh, <clears throat> but the idea that it was, it's supposed to be underground, that's what you're using the stick for. The stones were used to find things that were lost, and they may not be underground. And so the realm of operation where you get seer stones was people who thought that somebody could find something that was lost. All right, this is where I have to get my glasses on so I can read these. 
Here are some statements that will let you know that the seer stones that were being used in Joseph Smith's time were precisely those that did the kind of thing that they'd been doing forever. So Richard Bushman notes <coughs> that Chauncey Hart and an unnamed man in Susquehanna County both had used seer stones which they used to find lost objects. Carolyn Rockwell Smith confirms Sally Chase, a Methodist, had one, a peep stone, and people would go for, uh, go for her to find lost or hidden or stolen things. And that was the realm of a seer stone. When you went to a seer, what you were looking for was a lost or hidden item. And that's principally the way these things were being used. So just like somebody would use a divining stick to find something underground, these people were using a seer stone. That's the realm of operation. Now, <clears throat> what about Joseph and seer stones? A couple of stories about Joseph and seer stone. And what I want you to notice is that the story starts off exactly the same way as what we expect. And we'll talk a little bit about how history got morphed over time. But in this case, what we're looking at is Joseph finding lost things. And I've abbreviated this story, but it's still on two slides. So Judge Clark, a judge in the area, went to Canandaigua and got money from the bank. He wore, as was the fashion at the time, a large overcoat with pockets in each side, where a large pocketbook and handkerchief found a deposit. Uh, judge Clark, when he got to my house, found his pocketbook and money missing. And he was extremely troubled about it. Someone said, why don't you ask Joe Smith to look into his stones to tell you where you lost it and where it can be found? Now think about this for a second. They're actually assuming that everybody knows that there's this guy, Joe Smith, and that he has stones, and that if you've lost something, you can go ask him and see if he can find it. You remember the story we heard about Martin Harris and the pin? How many of you heard, remember the story of Martin Harris and the pin? What is Joseph doing? He's finding something that's lost. So what expected of you is to find something that's lost. <clears throat> Smith says, in a moment I see it. You stooped over to let your horse's head down and your pocketbook fell out of your pocket and fell into the creek and it floated down the stream and I can see it lodged against a limb fallen into the creek. And the judge went back to the honeyo and down the creek, but no pocketbook was to be seen. He returned to the place where he rode into the creek, which was a muddy place, and upon the bank he saw the object of his search. It seemed, as his horse plunged out of the mud, the pocketbook was thrown out upon the bank and the judge returned much elated. And that's the kind of thing you're going to see about stories of finding things. They kind of work, but sometimes yes and sometimes no, and it's uh, sometimes a little bit off. But people are thinking that these kinds of things worked. Okay, another one. Uh, E.W. Vanderhoof remembers that his Dutch grandfather once paid Smith 75 cents to look into his whitish, glossy, and opaque stone to locate a stolen mare. The grandfather soon recovered the beast, which Joe said was somewhere on the lake, on the lake shore, and was about to run over to Canada. And so they went and found the, the horse, okay? Now again, I'm not going to tell these stories to suggest that Joseph was a prophet long before he was a prophet. That, that isn't the function of this. This is to show that prior to the time that he becomes a prophet, he is functioning the same way that Sally Chase did, that some of these other people did, and that he was familiar with not a divining rod, but another tool of folk 
knowledge, which was a stone. And what you did with those stones was to find things that were lost. Now, we take that information, and we take that information into the Book of Mormon, and so now we say, okay, here's, here's the Book of Mormon, and we have the plates, and with the plates, he gets the interpreters. And the interpreters are what? Stones, right? Joseph is getting these stones, and they're in a bow, and he looks at them, and he says, shoot, I know what to do with these, right? I'm going to translate with these, right? No, because that wasn't his experience. Again from McKay and Dirkman. Moroni explained to Joseph that the spectacles were what constituted seers in ancient or former times and that God had prepared them for the purpose of translating the book. However, Joseph did not begin translating the plates immediately. He did not seem to understand Moroni's statement that the spectacles were included with the plates to enable him to translate them. He originally only used the spectacles to help protect the plates to find out, to kind of peek on them to see where they were and see if they were still safe. In other words, his initial reaction to using the interpreters was to use them for the same function that he had used before with a stone, to see things that were hidden. So in his world, he took the things that he knew and he translated them, and at some point in time, even with divine interpreters in hand, what he thought of was, I'll just use them to do what I've always done. Okay. Now, next piece, before we get into anything else about it, these things are weird. You know, there is no way that you can talk to someone and say, you know, I've got this great idea. I think we should translate this recently found document with a stone and a hat. Don't like that. Seems weird. Let's do a couple of things. First, why the hat? You know, I guess I'll tell that one later. Right? I'll tell you now, and there's a the quotation that comes up later to show it to you, but it's just the way it was done. One of the important things that everybody who watched a seer work had to know is that the seer wasn't doing anything uh, normal. It had to be known to be supernatural so that you knew to trust it. You know, when you get the magician and it's nothing up my sleeve, there's a reason they do that because if it's too easy and it's up the sleeve, you, you, you know that it's not real. If somebody puts their head in a hat and they block out all of the light, you're reasonably certain they're not seeing anything. So when they tell you what they see, when you know they cannot see, you know it's something different. All right. We heard about presentism yesterday. You hear it about again today in a slightly different way. Here's the part that I think is interesting, not just the definition that in presentism we take our assumptions and push them back on antiquity. And Ben Spackman talked about how we do that with scripture this morning. So we've heard a lot about that idea 
uh, that what we think today gets passed back onto history. It's a problem. But here's the one I want to spend time with. So here's what Lynn Hunt said. It's the one that I can read. Presentism, at its worst, encourages a kind of moral complacency and self-congratulation. Interpreting the past in terms of present concerns usually leads us to find ourselves morally superior. Our forebears constantly fail to measure up to our present-day standards. We, are more, we more easily accept the existence and tolerate the moral ambiguities of eunuchs and harems than of witches. Because they found a place in a non-Western society, eunuchs and harems seem strange to us, but they do not reflect badly on our past. Witches, in contrast, seem to challenge the very basis of modern historical understanding and have therefore provoked immense controversy as well as many fine historical studies. Now, let's unpack that one for a second. Here is the really important thing. No matter what we do when we take our stuff and push it back on history, the things that bother us the most are when we find weird things about people who should be like us but aren't. If they should not be like us, if I talk about the Trobriand Islanders a thousand years ago and I tell you some weird thing that the Trobriand Islanders believe, you're going to go, well, okay. Doesn't matter how weird or strange it is, it does not bother you because you know that it has nothing to do with you whatsoever and it's not part of our history and I can just say, yeah, that's curious, they were strange. But if I say Joseph Smith used a seer stone, he wasn't very long ago, and by golly, he lived in the same country we have, and I live not that far away from Palmyra. I was in New York and I visited those places. I mean, I know where they are. That's why it's weird. It's strange because it belongs to us and doesn't belong to us at the same time. If it had been anybody else and any other time, it would not have seemed so strange. How am I so sure? Here's one. Joseph of Egypt used a divining cup. And I think it's just wonderfully ironic that I get to use a Joseph as the example. Joseph of Egypt had a divining cup. So we're talking about Genesis 44.5, and this is the story where he puts the cup in Benjamin's uh, pack, and then they go find it. Well, that wasn't because it was a flowery royal cup, and you know it was fancy and it was valuable. That wasn't the reason. What it was was a really, really important and sacred cup because this was Joseph's divining cup. Well, what is a divining cup? E.A. Speiser comments, Divination by means of liquids is well attested, especially in Mesopotamia. Oil or water was poured into a bowl or cup, and omens were then based on the appearance of the liquids inside the container. Thence, the importance of the receptacle was likely to exceed its intrinsic value. Now, you can read that and you go, yeah, okay. Because this is Joseph of Egypt. This is a very long time ago, and it's over in Egypt, and it's the Old World, and besides, it's the Old Testament, which is a little strange anyway. But all of that says, I don't have to worry about that. But we have Joseph of Egypt divining using oil, water, and a cup. I submit to you that if Joseph Smith had used 
a divining cup with oil and water, we would find that equally as strange as seer stones. It's a different method of doing the same thing, and therefore, because it's Joseph and because it's close to us and because of the time period, we would find it just as strange. Okay? The problem isn't what happened, it's our distance from it and our closeness to it. We're far enough away that it's different, it doesn't belong to us anymore. It, because we have divining rods, we do not feel about divining rods exactly the same way as we feel about seer stones because they've gone out of use and we don't know anybody who does them now. Divining rods, not so much because we do know something about them. All right, next thing, problem of presentism. Joseph Smith is a treasure digger. Now, I have talked about him as somebody who found things, and one of the things that everybody wanted to find was lost treasure, and so there were a lot of weird people who were digging it up. And when you look at Joseph Smith and you look at the historical things, his history is distorted through treasure seeking because that is salacious. That is just really interesting stuff. And so if you read the histories, you're not going to read Joseph Smith was somebody who found wallets and found lost horses or anything. He's going to be a money digger. Okay? That's what everybody cares about because that's just really weird. Well, how weird was it at the time? Von Brody quotes out of the Wayne Sentinel from February 16th of 1825. We could name, if we pleased, uh, at least 500 respectable men, 1825, at least 500 respectable men who do in the simplicity and sincerity of their hearts believe that immense treasures lie concealed upon our green mountains, many of whom have... Uh, been for a number of years industriously and perseveringly engaged in digging it up. It wasn't all that unusual at that time. Now, why would they do that? You remember the stories about Joseph Smith and poverty? How they didn't have very much money, how things were always hard, and they were always trying to scrape out a living, and things were just plain difficult. You've heard those stories, right? So when you have people who are in a society where things are tough, you're going to try and find whatever you can do to see if you can get out of it. And if somebody says, you know, I think there's a treasure buried over there, you might say, well, it wouldn't hurt me to dig it up. I've got to work anyway. I might as well try dig it up and see if I get lucky, right? Yeah, we don't do anything like that at all. You heard of Ambrose Bierce's definition of the lottery? The tax on people who can't do math? <laughs> Why do people buy lottery tickets? For the same reason. Is it any stranger that people who are in desperate circumstances want to dig for a buried treasure that everybody has heard is there and buying a lottery ticket? How many of you heard of these people who are on a treasure hunt now? We've had a couple of deaths related to the treasure hunt recently. Why are you going on this treasure hunt? How many people do you think are going to find this treasure? I don't know, but a lot of them have, and apparently now a couple of people have died looking for it. And so we hear that on the news. But why would they go do that? Well, you know, if somehow digging around in my backyard, I happened to find a box with a lot of old gold coins in it, I would be thrilled. Now, 
I happen to know that nobody ever buried one there, so I'm not going to go dig them up. But if the rumor had been that there had been one there, I might have dug a hole or two to test just to make sure. So it wasn't all that strange what Joseph Smith was doing. The difference is, again, he's too far away, too close. It's a different world, but we think it should be our world, and so we judge him by what we do, and it's strange to us, and therefore it's hard to understand what he's doing. So we get to the next problem. Joseph is looking at plates, saying, I can't translate. You remember I said that it never changes. Joseph can't translate. You will never find a single statement from Joseph Smith who said, I translated the plates, unless he adds, by the gift and power of God, because he know he couldn't do it himself. It's got to be through the gift and power of God. There was no way this was going to happen normally and naturally we still don't have a grammar and dictionary of Reformed Egyptian. Still not there, okay? So, when he finally makes this connection and says, interpreters, help me translate. I can't do it any other way, maybe. Somehow he thinks of it and then he makes the connection. He says, let me try it. And so again, same book. Joseph used the spectacles in ways that seemed natural to him and were based upon his past experiences since 1822 when he was initially introduced to the duties of the seer. Now, how did he use them? Here is a more contemporaneous account. Jonathan Hadley, editor of the Palmyra Freeman, wrote, by placing the spectacles in a hat and looking into it, Smith, he said so at least, could interpret the characters, okay? Now think about what that says. First of all, think about the guy who wrote the sentence. He made sure that he said, I don't think Joseph could do it, because, you know, he had to say that, right? But it never seems to be a surprise to him that Joseph put the rock in a hat. That's not weird. He doesn't say, you cannot believe what this Joseph just said he did. He just stuck a rock in a hat. No, because everybody knew that's how you did it. So what did Joseph do? He took the interpreters and adapted what he knew how to do to these interpreters. Maybe at some point in time, he'd taken them and looked at them as spectacles and said, can't see a dang thing. Okay? Maybe he took them and rubbed them over the top of the plates and said, nope, that isn't working either. And he says, you know, the only thing I know how to do is I know how to see when I shouldn't be able to see, and I see with a stone, a seer stone and a hat, let me put the interpreters into a hat. And so he did it the way he would have been used to doing things. All right. Things that we're comfortable with. Maybe today, since we don't have seer stones, we'd come up with a different method, right? So what method might I come up with? If I were thinking of the very last thing that I could think of, maybe I might think of rubbings. And, you know, I'm familiar with what a rubbing is. It'll reproduce something. And so I'll put a piece of paper on this and I'll do a rubbing. And then miraculously, instead of the characters that I'm rubbing, it'll turn into English. I have no idea if that would work. But that would occur to me faster than putting a stone in the hat. Because that's closer to my world. 
Now, let's go back to another question. The question I ask is, why do we feel so uncomfortable? And so I've talked about that. It's the idea of presentism. Uh, and we push our ideas of what it was like onto Joseph. One of the questions I saw on the internet, even recently, someone says, well, do you think it's true that Joseph used the very same stone for treasure hunting as he did for translating? Did he really use the very same stone? Think about that question for a minute. This is a serious question, and the serious question makes the assumption that this is so strange to have used the same stone that it should never have happened. And the first question is, why? Why would that have been a difference? Well, because we're thinking of the difference between real miracles and occult things, and the stone's occult, and this is a miracle. Division which did not exist for Joseph. If I said to you that I used the exact same, exact same computer to write chapters about a commentary on the Book of Mormon as I did to watch cat videos on YouTube, would you think that's strange about my computer? It's, it's a computer. We all know that computers do these things, right? So it's not going to be strange to what use I put it. The result is what's really important. And the use to which I put that particular item. All right. That brings us, finally, at long last, uh, to the title. And I'm going to see if I can get through this quickly, because I told Scott I'd be through early, and we'll see if I can do that. All right. One of the ways that the Book of Mormon is similar to a seer stone is that we have some parallels in the way it's perceived. And so one of them is we have perceptions about the text that we will push back onto it. And one of those is anachronisms. And Neil talked about them yesterday, so I'm not going to say too much about them. Refer to what Neil said. But the reason we worry about them is because we know anachronisms are a problem we just kind of invent the fact that they're there because we make some important misassumptions about the text. Because we speak English, and the original Book of Mormon was printed in English, we forget that it was not originally written in English, and that what we are reading is a translation. And it is equally as possible that the anachronism that shows up, shows up because of the translation. Why would we think that's a bad idea and that might not work? Well, because sometimes we have another presentism that we push back on the text, which is, I assume that God is perfect and a prophet is perfect, and therefore anything that God and the prophet get together to do is perfect, and therefore the translation of the Book of Mormon was absolutely word for word, absolutely perfect. Could have been. Could be that there were some things in the text of the Book of Mormon that were very difficult to translate, and they came out according to the way Joseph understood them. Those are questions of our understanding about the text. They're not questions necessarily about this text. So the idea of what the anachronism is, those are things we can study, things we can understand. They're not things that are really inherent problems in the text. <clears throat> Next one, and, and I certainly get this one all the time. 
there's no archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon. I, I hear this frequently. Uh, this has now become a statement that somebody somewhere wrote it on something on the internet, and whether the people know it or not, they're just copying it and pasting it, either mentally or physically, and we just get this all the time. What's wrong with the Book of Mormon? There is no archaeological evidence of the Book of Mormon. Baloney! There's all kinds of archaeological evidence of the Book of Mormon. I was just talking to Scott, and I said, it's really unusual that we would have Taylor up here talking about Book of Mormon, and I'm not talking about the Book of Mormon. I should be, you know, usually am. And usually it's about, about either geography or archaeology. There's all kinds of it. Why do we say there's no archaeological evidence? Well, again, it's that presentism. It's taking a misunderstanding of archaeology and pushing it back onto the past and on the wrong thing. We assume that archaeology can prove something. Talk to an archaeologist sometime about what archaeology proves. Archaeology digs up artifacts and the archaeologists interpret them and help us understand them. Very, very little gets proven. And if you want to talk about proving things, you get much better when you have a text and you can do that in the old world. You have a real hard time in the new world. I don't care where you are in the new world. Very, very few texts. So one of the major things that we have that could even begin to give us any kind of proof doesn't even exist in the new world. So it's the wrong question to ask. And, and it just indicates again the presentism of asking the wrong question because of perceptions we have that are incorrect. Next one. Do we believe that it has to be historical? Two points to make. Number one. The church certainly believes that it is. I certainly believe that it is. If anybody here isn't sure, but you still believe that the Book of Mormon changes your life, welcome, brother and sister. I still love you, and we can still have all kinds of conversation. The church loves you, and you got the right thing. The vast majority of people who read the Book of Mormon may or may not know anything about its historicity. They may make a, you know, an idea about it, but they really have no clue about what the history of the Book of Mormon is. Most people who read and believe in the New Testament and the Old Testament believe them, but really have very little clue about the history. And that tells me that as long as what we're doing is getting the spiritual meaning out of the text, that we're getting the most valuable piece of the text. Should we therefore decide that because I don't need to know history to get the message, that therefore it wasn't historical? No, that doesn't follow at all. Is there any reason to learn about history? Boy, there's a lot of it. Because if you want to deepen your understanding of the people who were there, if you want to better know how it applies to your life because you understand better how it applied to someone else's life, you must understand that person's life to really understand it and really get the feel for it. So there's a lot of value in understanding the Book of Mormon as history and to understanding the history behind it. But if you don't, Make sure you get the point of the book. How is it parallel to a seer stone? Parallel purpose. The white stone revelation says that we can see hidden things. We can, by reading the Book of Mormon, see hidden spiritual things that can enrich our lives. It can do that for us because it has that power in the text to change us. 
Here is somebody who did not know anything about history, didn't know where the Book of Mormon took place, and here's what Parley P. Pratt said when he first encountered it. I opened it with eagerness and read its title page. I then read the testimony of the several witnesses in relation to the manner of its being found and translated. After this, I commenced its contents by course. I read all day. Eating was a burden. I had no desire for food. Sleep was a burden when the night came, for I preferred reading to sleep. As I read, the Spirit of the Lord was upon me, and I knew and comprehended that the book was true as plainly and manifestly as a man comprehends and knows that he exists. My joy was now full, as it were, and I rejoiced sufficiently to more than pay me for all the sorrows, sacrifices, and toils of my life. If you never know history, if you never understand seer stones, if all you understand is what Parley P. Pratt understood about the Book of Mormon. His joy was full. Your joy will be full with that same knowledge. Now, you can know more, but if you know nothing less than that, you've got the point of the Book of Mormon. Thank you. By naming Simon Barjona, Peter, Petros for a little stone, was the Lord holding or leading us uh, to the president of the church being a seer and maybe using a stone for that purpose. That requires a New Testament scholar. From what I know of the New Testament, I suspect not. Um, I suspect that that uh, is happening at a very different time period and the culture was not exactly the same one. So I don't think the connotation would have been there for them as it is for us. Does the church have a position on members using seer stones today? Uh, I am unaware. The church does not communicate with me all of its policies. I, I get them about the same time you do. Um, I know that the policy it has is the same one it had for Hiram Page, which is there is a prophet for the church to receive revelation. So whatever else somebody might do with a seer stone, I don't know. I know that during the time in Utah, there were people using seer stones to find lost things, and they were never excommunicated as far as I know. So at least at one point in time, they didn't mind it as long as it didn't conflict with revelation given to the church. Uh, how would I ask the Lord for help translating the plates in my modern context instead of using a seer stone? I would pray for an email with a PDF file on a translation of the plates. Amen. <laughs> Um, failing that, you come to this conference, find out who knows something about it, and go read books, okay? Um, how do you account for Carmack and Skousen's work on grammar and vocabulary dating to the 1500s with my theory of translation? Carmack and Skousen are really, really good linguists, and they have really good descriptive work about what the text means. Where they and I disagree is on how you interpret 
the data that they've come up with. So I have no qualms about their data whatsoever. There's no way I could have come up with that. They know way better than I do what the data are. The question is, what does it mean? And we have a difference of opinion of what's it mean, and maybe at some point in time we'll have a big long paper on how to resolve that dilemma. Uh, so Joseph Smith had one, more than one seer stone, right? Yes. Uh, two or three of them. Small anecdote I didn't toss into the, uh, to the presentation, but I remember being about 12, 13, 14, going to, the, going to Temple Square. They used to have a little museum there, and I swear in one of the little glass cases they had a seer stone. And I remember looking in it and saying, I'm about Joseph's age. Maybe I could see something. I didn't see. I saw a rock in a glass case. It's, I wasn't very good. I think a modern seer stone that we use in the church today with our use of oil vial to cure the sick. There's nothing magical about the oil itself, yet we know that it brings results. Any thoughts on why this use doesn't seem as strange as it does to us in the church? Yeah, I can tell you why it doesn't seem as strange. It's in the New Testament. Since it's in the New Testament that you know, the elders are to bring the oil, that history goes with it, and because it's imbued with the sacred idea of what coming from the New Testament, it, it just feels better. Now, is there anything magical about the oil? No. Is there anything magical about the priesthood? Not magical, powerful, yes. Okay. Last little bit, why the oil? It is olive oil, you will remember, and one of the ancient symbols for and associations with the tree of life was the olive tree, and the oil from the olive tree was historically symbolically related to the tree of life. So the reason why it's olive oil is there is this old connection to the healing uh, in the tree of life. So that's the, the, the sort of long religious history of why it's olive oil. Uh, why did seer stones fall out of use if they were so helpful? And where can I get one? I, I looked up seer stones on, on the, uh, the internet because I was looking for pictures and I saw several people selling them. So go on the internet. As you know, the internet has everything. I didn't check Amazon, which has pretty much everything else, but maybe they have a seer stones too. But somebody is selling seer stones out there. You can buy them. Um, so if you want one, go ahead. How did they fall out of use? All kinds of things fall out of use over time. Um, the, up, up through, oh, I think it was again the 1940s, uh, there was a, a shift in the understanding between the science and the farmers who had been using almanacs and all of these other signs to figure out how to plant and when. Uh, and when the scientific farming started getting more effective, some of these other things faded away but they were still being used up into the 1940s. Now they're going to use other methods. So in some cases, uh, the, the, the progress of time has changed our perceptions. Uh, and I think in this particular case, that's more what's happening than anything else. Uh, the number of people that do it fell away. As you can tell when you read any of the historical accounts, people were ridiculing seers very close to the time of Joseph. So it was a time when people were predisposed to not believe and the pockets of belief were smaller. And so as urbanization took over, it just killed that old tradition. Thank you.